Hi, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today I've got a conversation with documentary filmmaker Errol Morris for you. His movies include The Thin Blue Line, The Fog of War, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and his most recent, Tabloid. And if you watched his films, uh, you can tell that he's a guy who's not only interested in the world out there, but also the act of representing that world and how problematic that process is. So his movies are full of odd moments and provocations that make us pause and wonder about the things being shown to us. Errol Morris has long been preoccupied by truth and representation, and that's at the center of his new book, Believing is Seeing. It's about photography, or rather our relationship with photographs, the assumptions we bring to them, how they both reveal and conceal the truth, inform us, and mislead us. The book is a series of essays, each one closely examining some particular photographs. They're mostly photos taken in wartime, and their pictures considered historically significant. But what exactly that significance is, well, that's where Errol Morris raises a lot of questions. We talked about those questions both as they apply to photography and to his documentary films. Here's the interview. Errol, first of all, thanks for letting me interrogate you. Oh, I'm happy to be interrogated. <laughs> um, I've already turned to the very back of your book, Believing is Seeing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking at a photograph of you at your wedding. Yes, our wedding in Brooklyn criminal court between two prostitution cases. <laughs> what were you doing at that time? I had just started work as a private detective in New York City. A friend of mine, Zach Tuman, had had my job, and he had gotten a job working for Elizabeth Holtzman, who was then DA of Brooklyn. So I took his place. And Zach knew a lot of the judges in Brooklyn, and he said, well, one of them would be perfectly delighted to marry both of you, and that's how that happened. Well, I've been staring at the photograph a lot and, you know, making up my own story. Uh, what I see is, you know, a young couple. Uh, the guy, Errol Morris, has uh, a clip-on bow tie, it looks like to me, and it's kind of askew. It's a real bow tie. It's a real bow tie. Well, it's still askew. Yes. <laughs> see, I'm going off the rails here already, but let me let me continue with my little fantasy. Um, what's your wife's name? Julia Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. So, so this young guy, Errol Morris, has his arm around his bride, Julia Sheehan, uh, Nation. He's looking at her. She's looking at the camera. She looks a little shy. You both have um, champagne glasses, but they're empty, which suggests to me that you either polished them off or, or you're just holding them for appearances. I think there was champagne. Yeah? Yes. Okay. And it looks like a kind of wedding on the cheap uh, to me because the, the, the surroundings don't look all that posh. It's criminal court. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Well, I had a little bit of a narrative going there, not much of one, but I stared at it a long time, and uh, it doesn't disclose a lot more information than that. I, I also was looking at your jacket photo, which shows this guy with a big smile. Um, and is it a Duchenne smile? Uh, I think you would have to have <laughs> someone analyze it to be sure. <laughs> well, the Duchenne smile, as you as you talk about in your book, is a according to people who study these things, psychologists, a, a, a real smile of, of joy or pleasure as opposed to a fake pro forma smile. Yes. And, and I got this impression this guy, Errol Morris, is just a jolly guy, a really nice guy. And uh, 
Had he been frowning, I might have been more intimidated by this interview, but because he's smiling, I was all ready to go, you know, and have a good time with him. Good. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in, in doing that, uh, am I being a fool? Am I being a, a, a stooge for these photographs? I don't think so. I mean, your interpretation of the wedding photographs, I mean, I can certainly contextualize it for you. The judge seemed really not terribly interested in the fact that he was marrying us. He hit on my wife's sister. There was an American flag, what seemed to be some kind of bad pot, um, which also contained a box of rat poison. Um, there was a sign somewhere, I can't remember, maybe it was in the register, I'm sure it was not in the judge's chambers, uh, saying the throwing of rice is strictly prohibited and will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. <laughs> You're joking. No, <laughs> no, I think that sign was there. <laughs> well, this book is an argument, in a sense, with the photographic medium or maybe with the, the way it's received in, in, in our culture, uh, particularly photojournalism or documentary photography, photography that purports to be, you know, evidence of the real world. Well, when people take a photograph of the real world, it is evidence. That's quite clear. We have these fundamental intuitions about photographs that they are connected to the world. I mean, you are holding the camera up to reality and taking a picture. And what the nature of that relationship is, on one hand, seems incredibly simple, on the other hand, when you start to examine it, when you start to scrutinize it, it's anything but simple. Uh, it becomes difficult to figure out what is it that we're really looking at. And that is, in good measure, what the book is about. It's about trying to take a photograph and reconnect it to the world in which that photograph was taken. And the way that you manage to reconnect the photographs that you investigate in this book to the world is by looking at all kinds of other evidence beyond the photograph. Absolutely. Sometimes you look closely at the photographs, and, and sometimes the, the photographs deliver more information than we might have expected, but a lot of times they don't. In fact, they seem to deliver the wrong information. Or we can interpret them in ways that really has very little to do with reality, but just answers certain interests or beliefs that we have. Take the two Fenton photographs. Fenton could have kept meticulous notebooks or diaries about each photograph he took. He could have given us written information about which of those photographs was taken first. Um, but he didn't, not that we know of. There is no such record available to us, no record extant. So the question is, can we figure out from looking at the photographs, whatever evidence that we have, certain things about those photographs and the world in which they were taken? On some simple level, it's, it's contextualizing photographs, I guess, to use the fancy word. What is, 
is, in essence, is putting or at least attempting to put a photograph back into reality, uh, into the world in which it was taken. Um, just to give a little context uh, to what you just said, you're referring to a couple of uh, very famous photographs taken by an English photographer named Roger Fenton during the Crimean War in the mid-19th century of this place that came to be called or was called the, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, which had been yes. under intense bombardment uh, by the Russians? Uh, indeed, yes. And so there, there's this picture of this barren gravel road, dirt road, uh, set between two low hills. And um, there are a bunch of cannonballs. In one case, uh, the cannonballs are mostly in a gully to the side of the road. In another case, they're both in the gully and scattered across the road. And this whole essay of yours and the expedition that you took to the Crimea is a result of something that I think you read in an essay by Susan Sontag, where she claimed <laughs> that uh, Fenton had clearly taken the the photo with the cannonballs in the gully first and then decided, gee, wouldn't it look better and more dramatic if the cannonballs were scattered on the road itself, as though the road itself had come under heavy bombardment and maybe Roger Fenton, you know, was in danger. And you argued with her assumption, like, how does she know which one came first? And so you investigated and uh, through a series of inquiries with photographic experts and through a, an expedition to the Crimea, uh, eventually you did figure out a way of determining which photo was taken first. Yes. One thing that I hope was clear in the essay, it may not be as clear as it should be. Ultimately, although I am interested in the whole task of trying to establish which came first, that's not what the essay is about. It's about scrutinizing photographs in a different way, where the primary interest is to try to figure out what is the relationship between a photograph and reality. And by looking at that question, which came first, there are these two photographs, and they're identical photographs, except that in one uh, version of this photograph, there are cannonballs scattered on this road, and in the other, they're not. The road is relatively free of cannonballs. I call them off and on. Why should I care? You know, <laughs> uh, so what? The reason, ultimately, is that it gives us a way, a way in, to looking at some of the basic ideas in photography, a way into looking at some of the basic problems of relating a photograph to the reality to the, in which it was taken, to the real world. And that's the focus of the essay. Well, among the, uh, the arguments that propel this essay is not only the one I said earlier, that you severely questioned how Susan Sontag was able to presume that one came first, the other came second, but the intention that she inferred from that was that Roger Fenton had scattered the cannonballs on the road in order to make the, the photograph more dramatic, in order to maybe make himself look more heroic, i.e., the road had just been under shelling not too long ago, and he was on the road, therefore, gee, what a brave guy. And so you question this, you know, this tendency that some of us have of reading an intention into a photograph. I think all of us, I think. All of us. We read intentions into everything around us, photographs included. Susan Fentang's arguments 
seemed to me to be a perfectly circular argument. Uh, she believed that the photograph with the cannonballs on the road was the second photograph. And she was right. It was. But she had no reason for that belief. It wasn't really based on anything, save for the fact that she thought he had posed the photographs. And because she thought he had posed the photographs, it made sense to her that he had scattered these cannonballs on the road in order to, to make it look like he was really courageous by being in that spot because there were cannonballs falling everywhere, or to telegraph the idea that it was a dangerous spot for the soldiers who were caught there, and on and on and on and on. But to me, uh, it's not obvious which is first and which is second. Uh, it's not uh, obvious what Fenton's intentions were because we don't know. This is a photograph taken in 1855. It's a long, 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 long time ago. And who in hell knows what Fenton was thinking? So for me, it's a way of examining our prejudices, our preconceptions about visual imagery that uh, are really independent of evidence. Well, most photographs give us, really, when it comes down to it, very little to go on. Um, that photograph of you and Julia, I mean, I think I see a very tender look from you at her, but on the other hand, uh, the same look might have just been a passing glance. And you know how photographs can make any momentary uh, expression on the face look really, really important and symbolic, when in fact our faces make a lot of expressions in the course of a couple of minutes. So here I am. I think I know a little bit about this couple, but I don't know anything. I really don't know anything. I don't know if you guys liked each other. Well, indeed, uh, we have known each other now for about 40 years, and uh, <laughs> we do like each other. <laughs> In fact, the book is, is dedicated to her. Um, um, and that's, that's really nice to hear that, you know, that, that, that that look is real. But honestly, I don't think the photograph could, could have told me that. Photographs are part of an, an argument. Uh, if you wanted to tell a story you know, about my marriage, certainly those photographs could be a part of that story. But I believe we always need to know more. Uh, I'm fond of pointing out that photographs rip a piece of reality out of context. Uh, we can't see to the left or right, below or uh, above. And we have to really try to figure out w what is that connection between what we're looking at and the world. That's what the book is about, uh, my attempt to really understand the world through a series of photographs, to understand the limitations and uh, at the same time, what actually photographs can communicate very powerfully. You take a photograph, any photograph, you could separate it into two parts. Uh, Roland Barth did this uh, in a way that I find not entirely compelling and often confusing. For me, it's very simple. Uh, on one hand, we have a photograph and all the beliefs that people have about what they're looking at. It doesn't matter whether those beliefs are true or false. But we look at a photograph, and we have many, many, many beliefs about what we're looking at. Independent of that is the connection of that photograph to the world. 
and trying to trace back uh, that connection and seeing what we can discover about the world in which the photograph was taken. And that's independent, often, of our beliefs. Very few people in looking at photographs, this is my own experience, and I could be wrong, have really bothered to really track back what they're looking at. Uh, Susan Sontag would be the perfect example of someone who writes about photographs as if it's obvious, as if she knows what she's looking at, that the content and the meaning of a photograph can just be read off of its surface and there's really nothing more to consider. And I respectfully differ. You know, she did say something about photography, and I don't think she's the first, that, that I, I think is true. And she said, a photograph is not only an image, as painting is an image, an interpretation of the real, it is also a trace, something directly stenciled off the real, like a footprint or a death mask. In other words, a, a photograph, and especially a traditional photograph made by you know the, the old physical chemical processes before digital photography, Basically, well, was, the digital as well, also a trace. I mean, it's not. Uh, there's nothing about digital photography that tells me that there's not a causal relationship between the world and the digital image that is taken of it. Uh, that's true. Although the old way uh, was a little more stubborn and more resistant to tampering, and the new way allows you to to change it I any old. I disagree with that way. entirely. I don't think that tampering, the idea that somehow altering, tampering, you know, or the current um, term photoshopping an image yeah. is something that has anything to do with digital versus chemical photography. No sooner did photography come into existence in the 19th century that people were altering and tampering with photographs. And that's a general, I would say, misconception about uh, photography. Well, uh, let's have that argument just briefly. Um, you know, I'll put my side of it this way. Yes, indeed, you're right. In fact, you have a, a really good example in your book of an altered photograph from back in the 1860s. It's a photograph of a, a guy who became famous for having died in the Battle of Gettysburg. Right. There's a portrait of him uh, that was later retouched to add a beard and a uniform. It was a portrait taken when he was in civilian garb and didn't have a beard, but they made him look more like a Civil War soldier. Yeah. In this photograph. So, yeah, people were uh, doctoring and, and mucking around with photographs from the beginning. You're absolutely right. It's just that digital makes it so much easier and makes it so much harder to detect. Um, I, would, I would disagree with that also. I think that people endlessly mucked around with photographs, and those who were good at it did it in ways that made it very difficult for people to detect. Uh, in certain ways, they're easier to detect because... Uh, we can analyze the algorithms if we have access to certain data. The fact that the photograph has been altered or a raw file has been altered in any way is actually easier for us to to detect. I'm sorry to be persnickety about it. No, no, I, I believe me, I, I like a good argument, and, and I don't want to belabor it. Um, it is possible to do an utterly convincing job of fakery uh, these days in a way that even experts couldn't detect if you do it good. Now, you have to do it right. So I think there are cases where it's made it impossible. You know, the, the question is, is it harder to detect an altered photograph today, and perhaps even impossible, than it was, say, 100 or 150 years ago? Certainly the techniques that we have for analyzing photographs are far, far more sophisticated 
than they were 100, 150 years ago. I mean, it's interesting that the way in which the puzzle about the two Fenton photographs was solved, you could have done it in the 19th century. It would have been far more difficult. What we were able to do is to essentially create a flicker box where you had both of those photographs. They had to be manipulated a little bit to make them match, uh, since these were photographs taken uh, um, using what was known as a wet collodion process, a wet plate. Uh, the actual emulsion could run. It could move in slight ways. So first of all, bringing the two pictures so that they matched, and then flickering them back and forth and looking for the, the changes between one and the other. And that's what uh, made Dennis aware of the moving rocks, rocks moving between one photograph and the other. As it turns out, the solution had nothing to do with the cannonballs, which is quite amazing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But those techniques, the techniques of being able to, yes, you could have duplicated it in some way in, in, in the 19th century, and in fact, people did those kinds of experiments. Uh, Francis Galton, uh, is a great example of that sort of thing. But now, with computers, we can do all kinds of analyses that we just simply could not have done. Well, I, I take your point. I mean, digital makes it easier to, to fake things in some ways, but it also it gives you new powers of detection um, to, Absolutely. to find out Very fakes. powerful means of detection. Um, and I'd like to explain what you just said about the rocks, because uh, I don't think we're giving any too much away here uh, to explain how you ultimately solved the riddle of these two photographs, which came first. It turns out that by close analysis, you found that in the photograph where the cannonballs are on the road, a number of little rocks in the picture have shifted, and, and they've mostly shifted downhill. And that's exactly what you'd expect if people had bumped into them during the course of maybe moving some cannonballs around. Yeah, we look at the photographs, I look at the photographs, and I think, well, I may not know which came first, but I do know that someone was moving cannonballs. <laughs> I don't know to what end. I suppose there are these various recherche possibilities that between those two photographs, all these cannonballs rained down on the ground. But I assumed that they had been moved, and if they had been moved, there was that likelihood that people picking a cannonball up and moving it from A to B might have dislodged a rock or two um, in the process. And sure enough, you can see that, that rocks have moved, uh, seemingly because someone kicked them or hit them or nudged them in some way or another. And, and, and if you look at the general pattern of how they've moved, you can say, well, I think they've moved downhill because of gravity, and bingo, Eureka, you can order the two photographs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on that basis. Mm -hmm. And it really has nothing to do with the cannonballs, per se. It has to do with the motion of rocks. Yeah. Um, the light in the picture is not good enough to use the shadows cast to determine what time of day, which came first, which came second. But ultimately, the fact that entropy, gravity and entropy, uh, tend to result in things moving downhill rather than moving spontaneously uphill gives you a clue. And I, it's, 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 a, it's a lovely story, you know, of really, really close detective work applied to a photograph. Not all photographs, as I said earlier, would yield up that information. Um, Errol? Here's, here's something also that I would love people to think about. I mean, I, 
would love to see myself. I don't know if this is a self-serving description or not, as a Sherlock Holmes of photography. But photographs give us an odd way into history. If I pick up, there are literally hundreds of books written about the Crimean War. If I pick up a book on the Crimean War, I inevitably have to wade through 50 or 100 pages that go through all of the historical antecedents, uh, the, this disagreement, that disagreement, uh, the British, the, the the French, the Russians, etc. Very similar to picking up a biography. You find yourself the first 50 pages reading about someone's maternal grandparents. And you <laughs> wonder exactly why am I why am I reading this? Is this what I really uh, want to find out about? Well, the photograph short-circuits all of that, historical photograph. All of a sudden, uh, I pick up uh, the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm plunged into a very specific place at a very specific time in 1855. I'm on this road in the Crimea, in the outskirts of Sebastopol, and I wondered, is this a kind of odd time machine? Can I walk into the photograph somehow find myself at this specific place in this specific moment uh, in history. And what can I find out about it? Can I look around and all? I'm in the Crimean War, but I'm not in the Crimean War in page one. I'm in the Crimean War in the middle of everything. And that's how I proceeded. How can I learn about what actually transpired in the Valley of the Shadow of Death? Was there artillery fire on that day? Could I investigate the various artillery battles that were in progress? Can I f f look at soldiers' diaries or people who were um, in trenches on the hills overlooking the valley of the shadow of death? Uh, and that's how I proceeded. And I think that a very different kind of story emerges, a story that might be lost to us otherwise. But to construct that story, you had to do all kinds of things beyond looking at the photograph itself. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, and so here's the question I want to ask, and this is based on what I've seen of photojournalism. It seems to me the story is usually told by the writing, and the photograph is there just to say, look, see, it really happened. If I just handed you the photograph of the cannonballs in the road, you'd, you wouldn't know what to make of it. Where did it happen? Did it really happen, you know? All of that. But if I then write the whole story of the Crimean War and give you that photograph, you can say, oh, yeah, I read about the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and I know why it was bombarded and when it was bombarded. And, gee, yeah, here is exactly what it looked like. So did the photograph really add that much? I would never have looked at that gully on that date without the photograph. Yeah, so it, it definitely moved you. I mean, it nudged you, it inspired you, or it sparked you. It is one you. of the great, it is considered to be one of the iconic war photographs. This is at the very beginning of war photography. Fenton is considered to be one of the, the first photojournalists, one of the first war photographers. And this is his most famous photograph of the Crimean War. It is a picture that does capture your attention. For sure. In part because it is so ambiguous. I would say that is certainly part of it. Um, there are no soldiers in it. There's no people in it. It's a landscape, a barren landscape, 
there seems to be no vegetation of any kind. We look at this road, this dirt road, and a dirt side path along the road, and these cannonballs. And we have to imagine. We have to imagine the world around it. And most of the really, truly powerful photographs ask us to do just that. They, they show us something, but they ask us to imagine the before and after, the left and the right. I mean, the Abu Ghraib photographs are the perfect modern example of this because uh, they horrify the world. They have been probably shown, distributed more than any other photographs in history. Billions of people have seen them. And the question, of course, is what are we looking at? We all know the photographs. We've all seen the photographs. Maybe not all of them, but certainly there's two or three or four of them that most of us have seen. Uh, and yet, we may not know exactly what we're looking at at all. And so again, you suggested that somehow if I was reading a comprehensive book about a period in history or reading a comprehensive book about the Civil War or about the Crimean War or about the war in Iraq, these events would pop into view. I actually would say they would never pop into view at all. They would be passed over. One of the reasons that we endlessly think about uh, Iwo Jima and the raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi is because of Joe Rosenthal's picture. Without it, it would have been passed over probably with some brief uh, mention, if any mention at all. It's the photograph that brings us into history, brings us into that moment in history, that particularizes history as such so that we feel compelled to ask this question, what is occurring? What is it that I'm looking at at this specific place, at this specific moment? I want to get back to to, to a point that we, we may or may not disagree about. Um, you pointed out just a moment ago that the photograph, you know, gives us this, this vivid emblem uh, of the things that happened. It, it, it grabs our attention. It gives us a kind of artifact. I'm, I'm using my own language here, but I think I'm faithfully capturing what you said. But, but my question is, does it really add new information, or does it tend to confirm beliefs that we already had? So in photojournalism, when the editor's going to pick a photograph among many that were taken by the photographer at a location, it usually seems to be one to support a pre-existing story or to support the news story that's already taken shape. If it's a picture of a politician at a press conference, if the guy's having a good time and things are going well, they might show him smiling. If things are going badly, they might pick the one photograph where he's sort of looking down and looks sort of defeated, even though... Certainly, he... certainly that is part of it. But because an editor selects a photograph because it telegraphs an underlying news story doesn't mean that the photograph itself has no evidentiary value. It means that it can be used in various different ways. Um, Part of what fascinates me is how even the writing of a caption under a photograph can radically change its meaning or uh, putting it in a block of type. Uh, One context versus another can radically change its meaning. But that doesn't mean that the photograph itself has no evidentiary value. 
But uh, again, getting back to, I think, uh, a really important point that you make in your book and you, you make by example, to really get at the evidentiary value of a photograph, you have to know more than what is presented by the photograph itself. I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, you have a number of, of uh, insights that uh, you've posted in your, your Twitter feed that summarize some of the arguments in your book or some of the, um, the takeaways from your book. And one of them is false beliefs adhere to photographs like flies to wallpaper. Uh, yeah, and you've got plenty of examples of that in your book, how simply looking at the photograph and uh, you know reading it in a way that seems most natural, we'd get the story completely wrong, or yeah. we'd get it partially wrong at least. You know, one of the Abu Ghraib photographs that you examine shows um, one of the, I think she was an MP, was she an MP, Sabrina Harmon at, at yeah. Abu Ghraib prison? You know, very famous photograph of her leaning over the badly injured corpse, Dead. yeah, corpse of, a, of an Iraqi and smiling and holding her thumb up, and it's a horrifying photograph. But we learn from your account uh, that she had nothing to do with the death of this guy, that she always posed that way in front of photographs, maybe partly just to be one of the guys, to be one of the gang, uh, partly out of habit, partly out of putting up a good show. But she had nothing to do with it, and she was she professes to have been horrified by this apparent torture victim. Yet it was read as a sign of complete you know, jubilation, callousness on her part. Yes. Let me try and it was believed it was believed that she was in some way complicit. Yes, yeah. In the murder. Yeah. Uh whereas the evidence that you present points to the fact that this this guy uh died under interrogation and torture by the CIA. Yes. Yeah. Um that is correct. Um well, your book and this conversation I think you make the point that we should approach photographs with caution. We should avoid the impulse to think we've got it all figured out just by looking at the photograph. Uh, buyer beware, really, when it comes to photographs. Now, you, of course, have spent your life, or much of it, making documentary films, uh, making another kind of document. And a lot of your films, it seems to me, uh, attempt to put the artifice front and center instead of being real verite documentaries that uh, attempt to sort of plunge into the life of a person and be there on the scene. You present us with a whole bunch of evidence, evidence that clearly is presented as evidence, whether it's photographs or headlines from newspapers or staged interviews or little recreations and beautifully shot little enactments of things. But you seem to make it really clear, look, this is a guy putting together a film, presenting stuff to you in all kinds of ways that are, in a way, rigged for one purpose or another. That's more or less correct, yes. But, but that doesn't mean, of course, that if you take a movie like The Thin Blue Line, which has reenactments, uh, old movie clips, yeah. um, uh, carefully constructed interview material, etc., etc., that doesn't mean that I was not involved in an investigation and it doesn't mean that I'm not presenting evidence and it doesn't mean that I'm not presenting or providing an argument for why there was a terrible miscarriage of justice. And that's all there. It is. And, and that movie, of course, is dead earnest. Uh, and it's about a life or death situation. 
uh, some of your movies deal with with lighter subjects, or you know they don't have to make a strong case one way or the other where a person's life depends on it. And instead, you give us a lot of stuff to mull over. But here's what I want to know. I mean, how should we be armed when we when we look at your movies? You've told us how we should be armed when we look at a photograph. I think you should look at them and think about them and think about the issues that are expressed in them. Yeah. But, um, but are you are you trustworthy, or do we need to trust you? Uh, I am a dedicated investigator. Uh huh. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that anybody is a hundred percent trustworthy. I mean, if you're asking, am I trying to deceive people in my work? No, I'm not. I am actually trying to to address issues and to present them uh, honestly. But can you trust anybody just to hand you the truth without any any possibility of error? No, you can't. People make errors all the time, including myself. I just see trying to tell um, a story, faithful story of the real world, and to try to tell it truthfully as a goal. And I try to to strive. I do strive for it. Am I always successful? Uh, well, I hope I'm occasionally successful, <laughs> but I'm probably not always successful. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of your movies again, having seen them when they came out, many of them. And, I mean, you know this about yourself. You've got certain hobby horses. You've got certain obsessions, certain themes that keep coming up again and again and again in various ways. I mean, the themes that seem to take over movies that, that don't necessarily seem to start out being about them. I mean, in Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, I mean, for, Portrait of Four, people who are passionate about what they do, whether it's studying naked mole rats or robots or doing topiary or taming animals for the circus, it turns into this, it seems to me, a meditation on death and mortality and time, and that comes up so much in your movies. Um. Are you intentionally creating a body of work about these things, or are these things creeping into your work, or am I just way no, off base? I think it's part of what I do. I, I like to think that I'm an artist, I mean, if I'm lucky. And there's a real-world element of investigation in almost everything I do, but I think there's also, yes, you described it as my own personal obsessions, idiosyncrasies, interests, and that's all there, too. And, well, it should be, after all. I'm not just making uh, journalistic movies. I'm also trying to make things that are in part about myself. I, I call it a cake-and-eat-it principle. It's the dream of having your cake and eating it, too, <laughs> of being able to make movies about real things, to be a journalist, pure and simple, and at the same time to be an artist and to try to capture something about yourself and how you see the world. And if I can, if I can do both, that's really fantastic. Well, it, it struck me on seeing Tabloid, your most recent film, which in the latter part talks about a woman who has managed to clone a beloved dog, and she actually ends up getting multiple clones, multiple puppies out of this cloning, because she can't let go of this dog who died, it goes all the way back to your very first film, 
uh, Gates of Heaven, which is all about, well, not all about, but partly about people yep. clinging to their lost pets. So, yeah, you can trace some themes. You describe yourself as a journalist. I, I think of you as a, a guy painting a very interesting self-portrait. Oh, well, that's a very nice thing to say. Thank you. <laughs> well, Errol, it's been great talking to you. I really do. Thank you very much. It. And uh, it's been really interesting. I really appreciate it. Errol Morris's latest movie is Tabloid. His new book is Believing is Seeing. And you're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio. Next up, another documentary filmmaker, Jonathan Stack. I spoke to him back in 2008 about a film he'd made called The Iron Ladies of Liberia. It's about the largely female government of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf in the West African country of Liberia. Sirleaf took over in uh, 2006 after years of civil war and a series of ruthless dictators and uh, imposed a new kind of government, some people might call it, well, kind of matriarchal. That film that Jonathan made and the conversation we had is uh, newly relevant because just a couple weeks ago, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf shared in the Nobel Peace Prize for 2011. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Stack. Uh, tell me how you got involved in this film. Well, I had uh, made, uh, you know, even to go back a little bit, I had been making films in in the United States in a prison in Louisiana called uh, Angola, which is, uh, I made a film called The Farm many years ago and went back many times and it was an extraordinary place. It's a, it's a, it's a prison that had been a slave plantation and I was just got caught up in that whole idea of like, Looking at the at the at the results, the impact of, of slavery 150 years later, and Liberia, the country where Alan Johnson Sirleaf is president, is the only country in the world that America literally created. It was made in America. The Constitution was written there, and its original founders are freed slaves who returned to Africa. So I was totally caught up in that journey of of the African American uh, history, and that history, this piece of it, takes you back to Africa. And I got there in 2002, uh, kind of almost by chance. I was making a film series called World's Most Dangerous Places, and we were there filming with a rebel army group called The Lurd, Liberians United for Revolution and Democracy or something like that, and they were on their way to try to overthrow Charles Taylor. And while I was there filming, I just got, like, obsessed and caught up with this crazy country with this extraordinary relationship with the United States that I never heard about. And so after I had spent this, this, this month following this rebel army, I thought I need to go back and learn more about what this place is like and to make another film. And I found myself there a few months later, one month after the United States declared mission accomplished in Iraq, and it just seemed like the perfect place to look at America as nation builder. Let's, uh, let's, let's back up a little bit because you mentioned the history of Liberia, and as you say, I think a lot of Americans aren't aware of it. Uh, it is unique. It is extraordinary. A group of freed slaves uh, from the United States emigrated there in um, in the uh, early 19th century, um, 1822 to be exact. Yeah, you know, let's give a little historic context to this. In 1805, the second country in the Western Hemisphere to declare independence is Haiti. Right. And it's led by f- freed slaves who, who lead the re- revolution against France, and they succeed. The South, seeing an obvious pattern here, which is freed slaves are a problem. They're going to, you know, they, they, this is the group that's educated, they've got resources, and they're going to be a destabilizing force. They decide to partner up with the 
what they call with a, with a northern abolitionist to form the American Colonization Society, and so they organize, fundraise, and 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 come up with a plan to send back freed slaves back to Africa to build a nation to kind of recolonize a part of Africa to to bring Christianity to the so-called quote unquote heathens, and that's the motivation for it. And in early 1822, the first ships head back to to head to Liberia. And around 25 years later, 1847, the country finally, you know, gets gains its independence from the United States, and and goes on to create itself as Liberia, which the ruling class there is very powerful. They are what they call American Liberians, descendants of uh, freed slaves returned to to uh, Africa, and they're they're a small percentage of the country, you know, probably five percent. But up until I believe it was up until the civil rights movement in the United States. People of African, Aboriginal Africans, were not allowed to vote. This is one of the great ironies of Liberia that uh, freed slaves from America end up becoming the ruling class. The so-called natives are are sort of second-class citizens. You know that the Liberia was because it was so close to the United States. Liberia actually has voted more closely with the United States and the United Nations than even Israel. <laughs> oh, really? And, and uh, in in the when the first effort at a, you know the League of Nations was formed following World War One, Liberia was a member of the League of Nations, and they got kicked out because of they were accused and convicted. The president was accused of of doing slave trading. Wow! So, <laughs> Liberia has had a kind of a spotty history of its own, and trying to form formulate itself into a nation that encompasses and embraces all races and all backgrounds. And by the way, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is not a member of the America Liberian elite, though she. She has, uh, I believe, some family descendants from Germany. So you had been uh, filming there in Liberia during the, the last years of Charles Taylor's regime. He was the the, uh, the last of a series of dictators um, uh, before uh, democracy was restored. Um, and and so this woman, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who had been sort of an opposition leader for, for many years, had, had been jailed at one point, I understand, yes, or several she times. Jailed. She you know, managed to get out of jail. You know, she she definitely was a warrior for her nation. There's no doubt about that. And, and she gets elected um, and also appoints a number of other women into to positions of power, including the Minister of Finance, who's featured in your film, and uh, the uh, Chief of Police. And um, they start governing with a what would seem to me to be an impossible situation. Um, the infrastructure is completely destroyed. Uh, there's a $3.7 billion debt hanging over the country, tiny country with a tiny budget. Uh, I think it's that debt is 30 times the annual budget of the country, 95% unemployment. Uh, the factions who had been fighting all those years are still around and, and could rise up again. Describe how uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, and her administration tackle these problems. Let me just back up one little moment here. This is a country that's only held together by UN peacekeepers. There is no way in the world she could have maintained the control and power if the UN had not been there. there that's just a fact. And, but but they give her a window. She's got a window, and with this group of women and men, but definitely more women than had been in government ever before, she has like a window to try to right this historic chaos and try to like start to rebuild the nation and provide some services to this dysfunction uh, state. And they just start in, like, you know, right from the beginning, trying to, they've got to deal with the debt. The debt is so enormous and so absurd. The, I always laugh because Angola Prison, where I've made many films, the, the, the annual budget 
is $128 million. Wow. And the budget for Liberia <laughs> is $128 million. So that just gives some perspective. $128 million. So big part of their job is just to try to get the debt lowered. Otherwise, they can do absolutely nothing. And, uh, you know, it's just to try to, you know, get people working in jobs and create some order. There's no roads. There's, there's, absolutely, there's no water. There's no electricity. There's absolutely nothing. I mean, it's just the most dire situation and the people are hungry and they don't really it's not like you know democracy is a lovely thing and I'm, I'm amazed at how much faith they put into that system but the reality is they need to work and they need to feed their children feed themselves and their children and get their kids back to schools and this has been just a battle for the last three years and i've spoken to people over the years who were very tied to the government and they always say you know we made it through the first year that's a miracle we made it through the second year that's a miracle and the reality is the UN is still there, though not the 15,000 troops anymore. I believe they're down to eight or 10,000, and they're still needed. And the reality is they still are battling the clock. They need to keep that country moving in the right direction uh, to be able to, to, um, to you know, avoid returning to the chaos. Now, now the title of the film, uh, again, is The Iron Ladies of Liberia, and that suggests that maybe we're talking about iron-fisted um, uh, yeah. despots, but in fact... Um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and some of the other women uh, featured in this film seem to have a very gentle style, actually. They seem very much, well, I have to say, they, they almost seem like academics. I mean, in fact, they are. Uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf studied at Harvard, uh, economics. Um, her finance minister sounds like she might have been educated in the United States yeah. as well. There just were not enough people in 2005 and 2006 when she takes over. There are just not enough people in power to run that country. And she goes around the world and finds the best and the brightest and, and begs them to come back and help rebuild the nation. And there are people who have been out of the country for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Some people never been there, get educated abroad. Now, that sounds, that sounds like um, the makings of uh, a, a real debacle to me. I mean, we've seen best and brightest. In fact, that phrase was coined to describe the, uh, the smart guys who got us into Vietnam. Uh, uh, we've seen best and brightest scenarios again and again. Uh, it's also been applied to the neocons in the Bush administration and, and the Iraq War. People who go in with, uh, with theory and lots of education, but who end up um, screwing the pooch, you know, as far as running a country. But in the course of this one year that your, your film covers of the Sirleaf administration, uh, she seems to tackle a number of incredibly difficult problems with a, a really interesting mixture of um, rather gentle, thoughtful manner and occasional firmness, but not not uh, using force or, or uh, oppression. Um, and there's a remarkable sequence in the film, uh, I think, that really sort of encapsulates that. It's where a group of ex-soldiers have um, are protesting. They've kind of formed a mob in the streets, and they're angry because they haven't been um, given their back wages and a pension that was promised to them by a previous administration. They look angry enough to, to riot, and um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf goes out on the streets to talk to them. Tell me a little bit about what eventuated from that. Well, I think that's a great example of, of where she uses both both sort of the kind of the grandma, what they call the ma'oma approach, which is very gentle and caring and nurturing. That's, that's and her she, nickname, old ma. Old ma. The old ma means like, you know, the old lady. She's like, <laughs> the, you know, she's sort of the elder, elder states woman, states person who goes out there, wades into the crowd, fearlessly against the advice of the police, the social, you know, the Secret Service, and she just goes out there and she just sort of like addresses them, and that's kind of what they want. They just want to be listened to. They're just frustrated, you know. So, um, 
we have a clip from the film of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf herself describing um, the old Ma approach. Here she is. I must listen to them in a way that says, I want to hear you. I understand your plight. And that's the old Ma approach. And it usually brings a positive reaction because I'm coming as a mother to listen to them. That was Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, president of Liberia, describing her um, her particular approach to uh, to uh, reconciling uh, division in the country, the old Ma approach, uh, involving listening and being gentle. But then, in the course of this meeting with these angry ex-soldiers, after making some concessions to them, saying that they'll work on getting them their pensions, she then sort of upbraids them. And I, I want to play a little sequence where she does that. How do we respond to those people in the villages? The people who got taken out of their homes because SSS and Warren faction went into their villages, took all of their things, made all of them run, killed some of their people. What do we tell them? Every time you make demand, we give you money. What more tell them? You got to take care of them too. They were the victims. They were the true victims of the war. And those are the people we are concerned about. But don't stand up there and say you high and mighty. Don't forget those poor people out there that you have impoverished. Now, it's, it's really interesting. She's been very gentle up to this point, and now she's wagging her finger and saying, but if I keep giving in to you guys and keep giving you money, I also have to answer to those people in the villages who were the victims of atrocities committed by soldiers like yourselves. And uh, you've got to take that into account, too. And her whole manner changes, including the style of speech, which is interesting. She goes into... Um, I'm not sure what the right word is for um, Liberian, um, you know, patois. Well, they just reference it as Liberian English. Okay, so she goes into Liberian English, sort of the common speech, and uh, she gives these guys a dressing down. Yeah, there's no, I, I, you know, you, you, you pointed out something really interesting, that, that literally not only does she have these two approaches to governance, she has two languages that she uses. She uses the popular speak in which she's able to communicate with the masses, a kind of, I wouldn't call it a pidgin English as much as, but it is, the, you know, they reference it as a Liberian English. And then she speaks, obviously, the eloquence and the, you know, the, the aplomb and the vocabulary of a Harvard graduate. And it's very interesting, you know, how she can kind of go between these two worlds, and she has to do it, because she has to, she is the face of Liberia to the rest of the world. She has to go interface with the world leaders and to try to convince them to forgive her debt. And obviously, in those circles, you know, she has a completely different language, and she is, it's very interesting to, to see it, um, you know, to be able to see it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, the reaction of these tough ex-soldiers is is pretty amazing, too. They really seem genuinely uh, cowed uh, by this, this, this woman, you know, uh, calling them on their behavior, yeah. and they walk away and, and sort of pledge not to cause any more trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, I found myself at times in, in, during the war when I was there for the first film where I was in these scary, dangerous times, and I found that when I would get angry or raise my voice and be very authoritarian, people would, would respond. Like, there is a sort of a part of this culture that really respects the strength of a, of a strong-voiced person, and she definitely knows how to turn it on. She's a, she is a powerhouse. When you were filming there during the, the uh, conflict, I mean, you must have been in some very hairy situations. You know, there were times where it's, it's scary and dangerous, but I never felt, I have to tell you, I never felt threatened personally. You know, guns, bullets are flying, they don't discriminate. But, but as an individual arriving in a country, they love Americans so much in Liberia that when you show up, particularly at the hard times and the hard circumstances, they receive you with such gratitude and such kindness and, 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 
and love, really, that, you know, I, I, I always felt completely embraced. Uh, this is a country that in, in some way sees us as their mother country. Is that, is that putting it correctly? You know, if, if tomorrow they woke up and were declared the 51st state of the United States of America, you know, they would consider that the greatest day in history. And, 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 you know, Liberians are served in the Iraq war in quite big numbers. You know, there's a, there's a long, there's a strong relationship between uh, Liberia and the United States because of our historic ties and, and people still feel it in a very visceral way. And you see it everywhere you go. I mean, you know, and people go back and forth. I mean, Charles Taylor's son is an American citizen who happens to be facing war crimes trial charges right now for crimes committed in Liberia and he's facing those charges. And in a court in Florida. Oh, really? Because he's an American citizen, he doesn't uh, go to The Hague or, or some other exactly. international tribunal. Can you do the Liberian handshake? I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> I, I got the snap down. It's good to lick your fingers first so you have a little traction. <laughs> you should describe it for the listeners. Well, you know, you shake your hands, you kind of give a little fist, then you pull back, and then you snap your fingers at the last moment there. And you, if you get it right, they always go, oh. <laughs> Clearly, you're, you know, they, they, they see that you're somebody who understands them quite a bit better. So I would recommend anybody who goes to Liberia, find a Liberian, practice the handshake, and then go there, and you'll get much better results. <laughs> um, now, you as a documentary filmmaker know that it's very possible to sort of slant the truth or, or, or tell the story you want to tell with film and, and, and maybe gloss over things that don't quite fit the story. And this is a feel-good film. It, it covers one year in this uh, administration in Liberia um, against impossible odds and seemingly doing okay. Uh, but truly, uh, you know, are they still okay? Is this, or, or has it fallen apart? It's 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 now three years, almost three years since uh, the Johnson Sirleaf administration came into power. How are they doing now? You know, I'm. Look, the world economy is is collapsing, and Liberia is suffers even more. I mean, prices of basic commodities go up. They're 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 an importer nation for food, basic food. They need their rice, and their rice costs more now, and that creates rage and anger in a place where there still aren't enough jobs, there still isn't enough electricity, and they're still not running water. So, you know, if you were asking me, you know, are things okay there? No, they're not okay. That, on the other hand, would I say that have they made enormous like strides forward? Yes. And so they operate in both of these modes, and it doesn't take very much for it to explode. You see it sometimes when there's just like this. You know, people are incredibly patient. If, if the conditions exist in Liberia were sort of to be experienced by Americans for 24 hours, we would have like, you know, the, the second revolution in America. We would not put up with it. It's just too many hardships and just too many frustrations. But the people are patient, but obviously everybody has a limitation to the patients. And, you know, Ellen and her administration are so completely aware of that that that's why they work so hard. They realize they can't, there's never a day off. Like, there's never a day you can sit back and say, ah, finally, we got some good news here. I don't know they get that many good news. Their good news is so minimal that I, I, you know, I think they're just like, just keep it, you know, just they just know they got to keep struggling. And I think it was best summarized. I, I was making a promotional film actually for Liberia to help get investors to come there. And I spoke to a young man who was in Liberia. He'd returned. He'd never lived in Liberia, but he was a businessman. And he was so excited by the Ellen Johnson Sirleaf administration and all the strides that were being made. And then I asked him a very simple question. I said, 
if tomorrow, you know, he was going on about how he was great and how many opportunities. He was encouraging other young Liberians living in the United States to return and together they would rebuild the nation. So I asked him a simple question. I said, if tomorrow morning you wake up and you see the UN peacekeepers heading off to the airport with signs saying, mission accomplished, what would you do? And he looked at me and he said, get to the airport and leave. Wow. I just wanted to talk a little bit, Jonathan, about your film work in general. Um, I was looking at your Wikipedia biography, <laughs> and it says that you've earned a reputation for your unique ability to gain access into forbidden and even dangerous worlds. They're talking about your work in prisons like Angola Prison in Louisiana, uh, in uh, conflict zones like Liberia, and uh, the Church of Scientology as well, which you did a film about. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still up to dangerous uh, exploits? I love going to dangerous places. <laughs> so, you know what I like doing? I like going to places that people perceive as being conflict and discovering the common humanity that we all share. And so I've been saying to people, I keep making the same basic film. It's always looking for the best in people in the worst of places, mm. in the worst of circumstances, with the hopes that by shining the light on the goodness in humanity, we are able to celebrate and perhaps begin to move towards that light as opposed to so much of what media does is just go to the worst of places and only see the worst in people and end up just affirming the stereotypes that make people, you know, that sort of create more fear. And that was the filmmaker Jonathan Stack, recorded in 2008. And by the way, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is running for re-election as president of Liberia. The votes are trickling in, and she is ahead and expected to win. And that does it for another 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. And don't forget, we're on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs> Yeah.